Okay. Um, well, I'd like to talk about uh, self-compassion primarily, and if we get a chance, self-compassion in clinical practice. Um, just by way of describing the flow of the clinical talks, uh, tomorrow uh, Trudy's going to talk about hindrances, obstacles in the path, and tomorrow we're going to do a role play, uh, sort of a fake therapy session to illuminate how to, uh, how to overcome obstacles in psychotherapy, resistances. And then the day after that, we're going to be talking about presence and in particular the therapeutic relationship. And then the last day we're going to be talking about, and then we have a retreat day, silent day. And then the last day we'll be talking about uh, practicing in daily life. You will have it. Day after tomorrow. Um, Those of you who dread it, don't worry. You'll be ready by then. (laughs) Uh, So um, my main interest in the last uh, two years and uh, still is uh, is self-compassion, the practice of self-compassion, the theory of self-compassion, the application of self-compassion to clinical practice. And uh, for that reason, I wrote the book, The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion, because I consider self-compassion to be uh, the uh, ground of emotional healing, particularly in, when working with emotional uh, difficulties in psychotherapy. So then the question is, what is um, compassion? What is self-compassion? One of the uh, nicest definitions I know of compassion is uh, to do unto others as you would do unto yourself. Now, uh, that is actually for most of us quite a bit easier than the reverse, which is to do unto ourselves as we would do unto others. <laughs> and therefore, when we practice uh, metta these days, we usually start by connecting, as uh, Trudy said, with a benefactor or somebody who naturally makes us smile. We'll get more into that uh, during practice tomorrow. Um, But historically, traditionally, uh, self-kindness was used as an example for kindness for others. So Trudy uh, gave the the, verse earlier today that the Buddha said, On traversing all directions with the mind, one finds no one anywhere dearer than oneself. Likewise, everyone holds himself most dear. Hence, one who loves himself should not harm another. So that's in the Buddhist tradition. And, and Jesus said, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, the assumption is you, you know how to love yourself. And in Proverbs, uh, it said, the merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. So there is a sense of including oneself in the circle of uh, kindness. But nowadays, uh, self-kindness is not the standard. In fact, uh, um, my mother got interested in self-compassion when I started getting interested in this, and she was practicing for a while. And then when I was about to uh, print this book, I thought, well, maybe I can get a a line or two from my mother on this. (laughs) So I said, so, Mom, uh, you know, she was like 85 at the time. I said, um, because she'd been practicing for like a year and a half in some form or the other, I said, so what is 
most, uh, what comes to mind most when you think of self-compassion? And she said, well, Chris, I didn't know I could love myself. And this is a woman who raised four boys and who uh, was always really active in the community. She hosted a whole family of uh, Vietnamese children, boat children at the time, and a very, very giving, loving human being. But I didn't know I could love myself, 80, 85 years old. So I, I don't think that's unique to her. I think it's, it's uh, fairly common. Um, in, in my own life, I discovered the uh, power of self-compassion uh, through the doorway of fear of public speaking because I used to be terrified of public speaking. Jerry Seinfeld said, according to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. <laughs> death is number two? Does that sound right? This means to the average person, if you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. <laughs> and uh, it got so bad one year, and I think maybe Trudy was there. We were in Santa Fe at uh, giving a you know, at uh, a conference. And, and I got up and I was really nervous. And some, some you know, well-meaning psychologist or in the audience yells out, take a breath. <laughs> I, was, I was mortified, you know. So that, that was like a real low point for me in the public speaking anxiety. <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember our colleague, his first talk? He talked so fast no one could understand him. <laughs> okay. Is now like all over the world. Oh, oh is, is that the one? Oh, okay, yeah. Well, it's hard to shut me up now, too. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> but uh, so then I wanted to say, you know, kind of how I kind of got over this, and that is, I'd been practicing um, metta for about three months, and then I was um, moderating one of these annual Harvard Medical School meditation and psychotherapy conferences, and there were about 800 people in the audience. And so it, it came time for me to stand up and start saying some things. And, you know, I was terrified. I, you know, I was thinking about this like eight months in advance. And as I, you know, stood up, you know, the anxiety started rising. But simultaneously, as I was standing up, I could hear the words, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be well, may everyone in this room be happy and safe and well. May we all be happy, may we all be well. <laughs> and by, and by the time I was like, you know, planted in front of the podium, I was one happy, loving guy, you know, and, <laughs> and, and I had no fear. It just, it just washed away. So the, basically the practice of self-compassion using these metaphrases uh, sort of washed it away. And then uh, after that, I had the um, privilege of being on stage with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And, and, and so I started worrying again, well in advance, you know, oh my God, and I'm supposed to like say something. And, but even it, with the anticipatory anxiety, I could say to myself these, these phrases, you know, may you be safe, may, you be, may I be safe, may I be peaceful. You know, so, so months in advance, you know, I, I was already deep into the practice and it was soothing and comforting. And basically, I rarely have much public speaking anxiety anymore. And when I do, I know how to respond with the same kindness that I would respond to somebody else who was suffering. So this was really transformational for me. Um, also, as a therapist, we know uh, how uh, compassion opens the heart. Nancy was talking about that uh, last night. But what happens, you know, after, after a session when a patient 
goes off and and uh, goes home and you know sometimes and ourselves included sometimes we're wrestling with something in our minds and we're you know twisting in the sheets and we can't sleep and you know meditation isn't working and medication doesn't work and therapy is a week away and you know it and your partner if you have one is you know fast asleep and it's like really disturbing that they should be sleeping so well and you, you t- so there's that you know there's there can be like these midnight catastrophes going on and so what do we do then you know what we need at that time is for somebody to care and comfort us as we would care we can do it for ourselves we can give this same kindness to ourselves so this is the practice of self-compassion and this is a portable therapy you can teach your patients you can practice it yourself yeah. So uh, then the a question is, um, what is uh, self-compassion? By the way, I talk about mindful self-compassion primarily, which means uh, it has these elements of the present moment awareness, present experience. So what is it? So say, for example, um, you have a daughter who did something that really pissed you off and you yell. And then the daughter gets upset, and then your partner hears it, and your partner starts getting involved, and there's like a big argument and so forth. Now imagine that after you yelled at your daughter, before you then started yelling with your partner, you had the you had a moment. You took a self-compassion break, a two-minute self-compassion break, or a, had the opportunity to take a break. And you said to yourself something like, more than anything, I just want to be a good parent. It is so painful when I yell at my child. Okay, we're acknowledging our suffering. I love my daughter more than anything. And sometimes I just lose it. Okay, so we're compassionately seeing the reality, the mind, mindfully acknowledging the reality, the way things are. I guess I'm only human. Right, we're connecting with, with all humans who, uh, you know, are fallible. May I forgive myself for my mistakes. May we, our little family, learn to live together more peacefully. If you had this kind of self-compassion break, just think how the outcome would be a lot different. So we can practice self-compassion in our lives all the time, so it's more likely to happen. You know, you don't need two minutes, you need two seconds. You just need to blink, you know. Okay, so that's not what we usually do. Usually when bad things happen, we engage in what I call the uh, un, an unholy trinity of reactions. The first one is self-criticism. When, when something goes wrong in our lives, when we fail, when we suffer, when we're inadequate, even if it's got nothing to do with us, you know, we lose our job because of the economy, we become self-critical. You know, how, I should, somehow the default network, you know, goes to town and thinks we should have been able to avoid all negative things in our lives. Self-criticism. The second thing we do is what? What else do we do when things go wrong in our lives? We also blame others. So we're critical of ourselves, we're critical of others. But we also self-isolate. We actually tend to feel ashamed when things go wrong. It's not our proudest moment. We can isolate ourselves from ourselves by getting drunk or by, you know, blaming other people. Or we can just physically hide, you know. We don't usually like when we lose our job to, you know, go to the next next party that arrives and they say, how are you doing? <laughs> I just lost my job. Isn't it great? You know, we don't do that, you know. Self-isolate. And we also become self-absorbed. We get stuck in our heads. We ruminate. 
the default network goes crazy, you know. So we self-criticize, we self-isolate, and we and we become self-absorbed. So um, uh, this makes sense if you think of the stress response as fight, flight, or freeze. So fight is the critical element, and when turned against ourself, it's self-criticism. Flight is the isolation element. When turned against ourselves, it's self-isolation. And freeze is this kind of cyclic rumination that goes on in our head. So when we're stressed, we do these things. We fight, flight, or freeze. We self-criticize, self-isolate, and self, and we ruminate, become self-absorbed. Um, uh, anyhow, but there's an antidote to this, and that's self-compassion. And my dear friend and colleague, Kristen Neff, at... Um, at the University of Texas is is the researching pioneer in this area, and she and I are actually creating a MBSR-style eight-week training program in mindful self-compassion. We've piloted it once, and we're doing some more piloting, doing a big research project in a year. Anyhow, she formulated three core components of self-compassion. The first one is self-kindness. Self-kindness. The second one is a sense of common humanity, and the third element is mindfulness. Okay? They are the opposite of the unholy trinity. Self-kindness versus self-criticism. A sense of common humanity, like I'm only human, versus self-isolation. And mindfulness versus self-absorption. We're not stuck in this one little frame. We can open to the bigger picture. So I'd like to read a poem which illustrates self-kindness. This is from our poet laureate again. One day, you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of uh, fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So that um, voice, that new voice, is the voice of self-kindness. So when things go, when often we motivate ourselves with criticism, like, come on, you jerk, you should be able to do this rather than, you know, this is tough, but I think you can do it. It may take a little while. Maybe you need a cup of tea, take a break, and then get back to it. You know, we tend when things go wrong to motivate ourselves with self-criticism. But see, next time you're pushing yourself hard to do something, if you can't do exactly the same thing, with kindness, if there can be a new voice, which, which, uh, as she says, you know, with which you can stride deeper and deeper into the world. 
So the second component is a sense of common humanity or humanness so that we don't self-isolate. And here's, one, here's a lovely poem from David White which illustrates this. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone. As if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely, even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you or the window latch grants you freedom. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. Okay, this is mindfulness. We feel at one with all beings through mindfulness. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. They're a part of who we are. The stairs are the mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and to invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. That's the spirit of common humanity, you know. Now imagine if you could feel that when things go wrong. If you can feel that the kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink and it's there for you. I mean, who else is it there for? I mean, it's doing itself, its thing, and you're there. You're with the kettle and the door. You know, the phone is our dream ladder to divinity. We are part of everything. This consciousness we cultivate through metta, a sense of universal participation. Okay? And then we have self-absorption versus mindfulness. So keeping things in mind in a non-judgmental way. So this is a poem which everybody knows, but every time it's read, maybe it sounds a little different. You do not have to be good. Right? When we ruminate, we think we need to be good. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. When things go wrong, when we feel inadequate, when you know we fail, you do not have to walk a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me your despair, yours, and I'll tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Okay, this is mindfulness versus self-absorption. Tell me your despair, I'll tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. You know, when we stand by the tree. Meanwhile, the tree is growing for another 500 years, maybe. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, and we have a few of them, and they are indeed migrating. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the blue, clean air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, 
No matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. So, in a sense, this sense of common humanity and mindfulness is very similar, you know. So, so that is the uh, vibe of self-compassion. Um, there's a lot of kind of. Shall we shift from the right brain to the left brain? <laughs> there's a lot of. Okay. <laughs> now we're, we're we're shifting to the whole brain. <laughs> okay, let's take a moment. So, um, Kristen Neff made a scale, a mindful uh, self-compassion scale, which you can actually take, and uh, it will be automatically scored online if you go to uh, www.self-compassion.org. It's in your handouts, that um, website. Um, and most of the research that's been done on self-compassion, there are probably about three or four dozen studies now, uh, self-compassion is one of the leading edges of mindfulness in psychotherapy. There are 1,500 articles on mindfulness, about four dozen on um, self-compassion. A lot coming out really fast now. Most of the studies have been done with, with Kristen's scale. And most of the studies are actually correlational scales, although once our training program comes on, there'll be more um, uh, um, scales which we can do an intervention and we can see how that occurs sort of prospective you know anyhow but uh uh self-compassion is reliably more closely correlated with uh measures of wisdom personal initiative happiness optimism positive emotion coping that is to say uh well scales of well-being self-compassion scales more closely correlated than mindfulness scales so it could be that the self-compassion or the emotional element in the mindfulness scales accounts for a lot of the variance. That is to say, why why the mindfulness practice makes people feel good, because they develop this core self-compassion practice. Another interesting thing is that people who have a lot of self-compassion have high self-esteem, but it's from a completely different uh, origin. Um, self-esteem is often related to where we stand in the pecking order, you know, if I'm like a big shot, then I feel good about myself. And if I'm not, I don't. But with self-compassion, self-compassion is much more stable. It's not based on external validation. What it means is, is when something goes wrong within us, we bring kindness to ourselves and and we actually feel pretty good about ourselves because we have the capacity to talk to ourselves, comfort ourselves, soothe ourselves. And we don't have to strive through narcissistic striving to kind of, you know, claw our way up the up the uh, the pecking order in order to feel good about ourselves. So both people, so people with self-compassion have high self-esteem, but it's a completely different origin. Scales of self-esteem are correlated with narcissism. There is zero correlation between scales of self-compassion and narcissism. No relationship between self-compassion and narcissism. Narcissism is a reaction to low self-esteem. Yeah. There are scales that measure self-esteem. There are scales that measure narcissism. And there's a scale that measures self-compassion. And 
people who are high on self-esteem often are high on narcissism. People who are high with self who have a high self-compassion score, there's no relationship to narcissism. It's a completely different internal psychological experience. Yeah. Yeah. And um and there there have been studies done, for example, people who uh, diet and then they fall off their diet. If they have high self-compassion, they're more likely to resume their diet, whereas if they don't, then they tend to beat up on themselves and then it takes a much longer time before they can get back on their diets. So it's key for that. Uh, children who have academic failure but high self-esteem, I mean high self-compassion, are more likely to actually turn toward what they didn't know and and try to learn it better the next time rather than saying oh, I was a stupid test, stupid teacher, I don't like that and then you know go off and basically start to sabotage themselves. So this is a really important new construct. Yeah. yeah. So uh for our patients, one thing we can do and also for ourselves is we can take a self-compassion break. Now um in mindfulness, we often take uh, a conscious breath. We feel the breath, you know, like when the bell rings. We enter into the present moment of experience. We feel our bodies. We can also take a self-compassion break. So if you ever, you know, something really bad happens and you find yourself starting to beat up on yourself, take a self-compassion break. So this is how to take a self-compassion break, okay? Very simple, very quick. So the first thing to do, and this if you cannot do this, this is a measure of how much you may need self-compassion. The first thing that you can do is put your hand on your heart. And you, this can be the only thing you need to do. But when we do that, what we're doing is finding ourselves in the blizzard of thoughts and feelings. And, you know, basically we're discovering that we also exist in the circle of compassion. We put our hands on our hearts and thereby we find ourselves. We find the suffering individual. And you feel the warmth and the gentle pressure of your hand. And that is instantly comforting. And just like Scott's doing, if you put two hands, it actually is like, you know, at putting it on steroids, you know? <laughs> because there's not one hand flailing around in the world. You've actually gathered your attention and you, you're bringing kindness to your own heart. So it's, yeah? Interesting, yeah. Yeah, for self-soothing. Yeah, so that we can do that as well. Uh, so, and, but if you're in a public place, you know, it might be a little embarrassing to do, but if you're not, it, 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 it's an astonishingly powerful um, expression. And then just take a deep breath. And by doing that, you're, you're entering inside your experience. So this way you find your body, then you take a deep breath. Then we say three different phrases which correspond to the three components of self-compassion. So the first one is simply, this is a moment of suffering. This is a moment of suffering. We're naming it. This is mindfulness. This is a moment of suffering. So, of course, now, now if you're not suffering, it makes no sense. But imagine that something really bad happened. You go, this is a moment of suffering. So this is the mindful part of mindful self-compassion, that you can't be compassionate if you don't feel the pain. If you're 
separated yourself from the pain, it doesn't work. This is a moment of suffering. Then the second, the common humanity element. Suffering is a part of life. By the way, you have a handout of this. You don't need to write it down if you don't want to. Suffering is a part of life. In other words, I'm not the only person on the planet who ever lost his job, lost his spouse, or, you know, whatever. We, you know, whatever we're suffering from, there are, as we speak, millions and millions of people who are also suffering in the same way. So the isolation really compounds our pain. So we say, this is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. We, we make sure we remain tethered to the rest of humanity. And then we bring self-kindness to ourselves with various phrases such as, may I be kind to myself. May I be kind to myself. Some people are, they can't do that when they're suffering greatly. They can't say, may I be kind to myself because they're so full of self-hatred. They can say, may I learn to be kind to myself. Or, May I forgive myself if we feel like we did something really stupid, you know, and we're beating up. May I forgive myself. Or may I be safe. May I be happy and free from suffering. Or may I safely endure this pain. May I find peace in my heart. Okay, so these are all self-kindness phrases. May I be strong. May I protect myself. That's really important. May I protect myself. May I learn to live with ease and well-being. Or, if the circumstances are such, may I um, accept the circumstances of my life. If they're ones that you can't change and you have to learn, it's a kindness to say, may I accept these circumstances. Say somebody's passed away. You can't accept it. May I accept these circumstances. May I be wise and change what I can. May we learn to live together in peace. May we grow in mutual respect. So whatever is the kindest thing. Okay, so three phrases. This is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. May I be kind to myself. This is a self-compassion break. And uh, you'll find your patients really uh, enjoy it. So anyhow, there's often a little skepticism about the phrases. So I'd like to read to you a a little Jewish uh, story. A disciple asked the rabbi, why does Torah tell us to place these words upon our hearts? Why doesn't it tell us to place these holy words in our hearts? The rabbi answers, it's because as we are, our hearts are closed. And mind you, when we suffer, our hearts often do start to tighten. It's because as we are, our hearts are closed. And we cannot place these holy words in our hearts. So we place them on top of our hearts, and there they stay until one day the heart breaks and the words fall in. So we practice. You know, when we practice metta, sometimes the words are robotic, empty, you know. There are different things you can do when that happens, you know. You can um, refresh your aim, find yourself in the crowd. Or you can savor the meaning of the words. 
or you can find the love you find for somebody else and then bring it to yourself. There are many things you can do, but inevitably anything we repeat, it becomes robotic. But after a while, it really sinks in. I remember uh, when I was in seventh grade, we were, you know, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. And at one point I said, wait a minute. I'm pledging allegiance to a flag? <laughs> a textile? <laughs> in other words, at some point, you repeat it enough, and you start to actually engage the meaning. You know? <laughs> or disengage. Or, or in this case, disengage. It's like, you've got to be kidding. I've been saying this for 15 years. <laughs> But if the meaning is important, we do, anyhow, so we can find the meaning. So, you know, at some point, the heart breaks and the words do fall in, you know. Um, many people have said, I hate metta, particularly guys, actually. They don't like it for some reason. I hate metta. Why, why would you hate metta? Well, I can tell you there are no atheists in the trenches, you know, as they said in World War One. You know, everybody finds God in the trenches. Well, Actually, metaphrases have a lot of meaning to even the toughest characters, the toughest sort of help-rejecting characters, when it gets really tough, when it gets really tough. And I can tell you that the greatest help-rejecting people are actually ourselves. So when you're suffering a great deal, try to remember metta. You give yourself this sweet thing when you're really suffering, and you watch what happens. This is a mindfulness practice, by the way. Metta is totally a mindfulness practice because what we're doing is we're giving a probe to the, to the uh, psyche, to our emotional landscape. We're introducing kindness, and then we see what happens. What happens? Usually what happens is the opposite arises. Okay, the way I know that, and I've experienced this here in Vaisitos, a rock is hard is because my toe is soft. You know, I say, may you be safe. What happens? I think of all the ways I'm unsafe. <laughs> may you be kind to yourself. I think of all the hundred ways I'm unkind to myself. This is natural. Okay, this is why when we give our patients loving kindness, they, it, it actually draws out the pus, you know. And we need to carefully regulate that. And we, when we give ourselves loving kindness, the same thing happens. This is what we call backdraft. Backdraft is an expression from uh, firefighting. And basically, uh, when a fire is in a room and the door is closed, and then the fireman opens the door, oxygen rushes in, and f the fire becomes ex explodes outward into the oxygen you know that's that's called backdraft you know that's why firefighters feel a door to make sure it's not too hot same thing happens with our hearts you know when our hearts are hot with suffering and we open the door to our hearts and we introduce loving kindness there's often explosion you know i have a patient who um who uh Actually, different patients have said different things. One patient said, may I be happy as a minefield? Another person, this was a, this guy was a physician. He said, uh, medicine, uh, me medicine. <laughs> meta, meta is like dropping cold water on a hot skillet. The water sizzles and skates around the pan. It's a good thing, but it takes a time, it takes a little while to realize it's a good thing. 
Another person said, the light of love brings up, I'm unlovable, I'm self-indulgent. I had a client once who I said, you know, she spoke up to her father um, in a strong way, and I said, that's amazing. That took took enormous courage. And she said, don't patronize me. <laughs> and I was thinking, was I patronizing? You know, I, I was really impressed. And But she'd been told so often, you know, She's been um, uh, degraded and told she's weak and stupid. So then her therapist says, this is, again, similar to what Nancy was saying last night. I'm not going to stop telling you how lovable you are. you know. But it does bring up this other thing. So um, she'd been hearing all these bad things in her head. So when I said, you're so courageous, all she heard in her head was, you know, you're useless. You're, you know, some critical negative stuff. She couldn't hear my words because actually she only heard her own reaction to my words. Similarly, when we practice loving kindness, we say these sweet things and often all we hear is (laughs) what to do when that happens, by the way. Three things you can do when when, uh, you get stirred up as you practice loving kindness. One thing you can do if it's not stirred up too much is you can just allow the internal chatter or the negative feelings that come up to be a little bit like background. You can just allow it to be background. You know, Another thing you can do is to recapture the energy of loving kindness by thinking about a benefactor, someone who makes you naturally smile, and then tuck yourself in. Tuck yourself in. And a third thing you can do is you can go back to your breath. You don't need to do this. You find safe refuge in your breath. And if meditation altogether is too disturbing, take a walk. <laughs> you just, or as we say, jump in a lake. It'll change your mind. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, so I had a patient who, when I she learned these things, and I can tell you, after two years, she told me, and we both wept. She said, "Chris, I have finally learned to love myself. It it works. It really works, but it takes a little while." She started with her dog, Ginger. She, she's a, she grew up in poverty. She didn't have much money. She always kept her dog really, really in good shape. Very, very healthy dog. She would starve herself, literally, in order to take care of the dog. So, so she, she, her dog was her benefactor. She loved her dog. And so she started the practice for her dog. You know, may you be safe. May Ginger be safe. May Ginger... Be peaceful. May Ginger be healthy. May Ginger have a life with ease. And then at some point it dawned on her, this won't work unless her owner also feels that way. May Ginger and I be safe. <laughs> eventually may we be safe. May we be peaceful. May, And then eventually may I. And this is how we sneak up on ourselves. We tuck ourselves into the benefactor. And then we sneak up on ourselves and give ourselves a little stealth love. And eventually, it's not so bad. Eventually, our container is clean enough of all the negative messages that we can hold it. I'd like to say two last things, and then maybe we'll have a little time to chat before um, dinner. Well, yeah, the last time they did ring the dinner bell like 5.15. That's because we didn't 
And the bell ringer. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So let me just uh, very briefly say two things. Yeah. No problem. No problem. No problem. So, so, um, uh, so far, when we've been talking about self-compassion, we've talk, been talking about kind of bringing kindness to ourselves in kind of an intra-psychic way. But actually, every moment of our lives is an opportunity to be self-compassionate. And what that means is to respond to pain with kindness. And we can do this in infinite number of ways in our daily life. Following uh, Mary Oliver's uh, phrase, you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. When you experience pain, when you're critical, self-isolating, self-absorbed, think, what does the soft animal of my body love? You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And that means physically. Maybe I need to take a bath. Maybe I need to drink a cup of warm tea. Mentally. Maybe I need to be kind to myself in, you know, with loving kindness phrases. Relationally, maybe I need to seek out a good friend. Spiritually, maybe I need to go to church or synagogue or take a walk in the woods. How do you take care of yourself? So there's there's um, handouts about this you can use as a model. So there are infinite ways. You don't just have to sit down and meditate. Self-compassion has many, many arms. Okay. So I'm going to leave you with what I consider the um, the crux of the matter. And in fact, of all the things that you might have might hear out of my mouth over this week, I think this is by far the most important thing. What I'm going to say now, and that is that we give ourselves kindness and un- kindness and understanding, not to feel better, but because we feel bad. We are kind and understanding and bring mindfulness to ourselves, not to feel better, not to manipulate how we feel, not to change how we feel, but because we feel bad. We're we're having a loving and a healthy response to the way things are, not trying to manipulate inevitably arising experience, moment to moment. Okay? So we don't want to add, you know, self-compassion like it's a cool new thing. We don't want to use self-compassion in the service of resistance, in the service of fighting the way we feel, because it's only going to make it worse. We want to open the field so that our suffering has a chance to breathe and disappear. We do that with a wide embrace. So Sigmund Freud said, Uh, A person should not strive to eliminate his complexes, but should get in accord with them. You know, this is what we're talking about. Often in psychoanalysis, you know, we create some sort of straw man and then we pummel the hell out of it, you know. No, we're, we're allowing ourselves to have our complexes and get in accord with our complexes. This is the spirit of self compassion. Similarly, Carl Rogers said, The curious paradox of life is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. Okay, so we're not giving ourselves kindness 
to feel better or to be somebody different, but because we might need it at a given time. So we're we're stopping fixing and we're starting caring. Okay, so in in the medical profession, uh, ho- there's at least one person here. Um, Claire used to work in hospice. Hospice is usually called in when there aren't any more cures. You know, we give care and comfort in hospice, right? Now, the interesting thing, in emotional life, care and comfort is cure, is cure. When we can respond to the pain with care and comfort, it cures. When it comes to a physical uh, condition, often it can also cure, but... Usually, it's the primary treatment when all other, everything else has failed. In mental health, care and comfort is cure. We stop fixing, we start caring. So I'd like to close with words from Pema Chodron, which I think are particularly relevant to therapists, because you, you may hear this, and it will sound profoundly untherapeutic, but it is the very essence of therapy, and that is, We can still be crazy after all these years. We can still be angry after all these years. We can still be timid or jealous or full of feelings of unworthiness. The point is not to throw ourselves away and become something better. It's about befriending who we are already. And this is the essence of self-compassion. This is the practice of self-compassion. This is my wish for all of us in on this retreat, that we, that we befriend who we are already. We're not becoming better meditators, you know. We're not learning to concentrate better. We're learning to befriend the fullness of our experience, including all the things that we think are wrong with us. And we will discover something which can't be put into words. Here we are. <laughs> so we should. So, whoever is selling it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.